The end of 2023 brought us the Synod on Synodality and Blessings for Same-Sex Couples. They continue to stir controversy. Retired Bishop of Hong Kong, Cardinal Joseph Zen, joins us to share his insights on all of it, as well as his brand new book, Lenten Reflections. And New York Times bestselling author Mitch Album is here. He explores the nature of lies, truth, redemption, and love in his new novel, The Little Liar. And there's nothing quite like the beauty of voices joined in song. And with Lent approaching, choir master Charles Cole of the London Oratory Schola joins me to talk about his new CD, Sacred Treasures of Venice. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me an ex post. I am at Raymond Arroyo. First, some news. Over the last seven days, amazingly, three bishops in three different dioceses in China have been ordained with the approval of both the Chinese Communist government as well as Pope Francis. All three prelates were appointed and ordained in accordance with the still unknown terms of that Vatican-China agreement. The infamous pact between the Holy See and the CCP was first signed in 2018. It has been renewed every two years since. The text of the agreement has never been published. Vatican officials will only say that it ensures that Catholic bishops are elected by the Catholic community in China and approved by the Pope before ordinations and installations take place. Uh, so far, many apparatchiks of the communist government have made their way to being confirmed as bishops. He is the retired bishop of Hong Kong, and he joins us tonight to talk about his brand new book, Cardinal Zen's Lenten Reflections, just in time for Lent. And we're also going to dive into some breaking stories. Please welcome back to the program the heroic Joseph Cardinal Zen. Your eminence, thank you for being with us. Before we get to your book on these Lenten reflections, I'd like to get your thoughts on this controversial Vatican directive from the Pope on blessings, particularly those given to same-sex couples and couples in what the Vatican has called irregular situations. Now, you recently said, and we're going to put it on the screen, the head of the Vatican's doctrinal office, Cardinal Victor Manuel Fernandez, should resign. And you write... If the prefect of the DDF is committing a heresy by claiming a serious sin as good, then shouldn't the prefect resign or be dismissed? Your Eminence, let's start with what do you mean by confusion being created by this document? What confusion? Uh, yeah, they, they repeat very often that uh, uh, it's a pastoral direction. And so they say, we want to avoid the confusion. Though they said many things uh, which, uh, which only uh, made a bigger the confusion. Huh? And uh, uh, maybe they know that somebody are waiting for an occasion to, to create confusion. Huh? So it's not good. But the second uh, explanation uh, seemed to, uh, in some way, be a retraction of what uh, he said in the first uh, 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 declaration. Huh? And uh, he seems to understand uh, 
uh, there is a confusion uh, in the uh, in, in the church. Uh, but even worse, there are people uh, to to waiting to have an opportunity to make confusion. Uh, uh, people both uh, in the church and uh, the people of the media. Uh, and so, uh, actually, uh, the whole thing is uh, uh, really confusing. Uh, and then, uh, among yeah. the many confusions, there is something which seems to be uh, not uh, so implicit, uh, because the, the homosexual couple uh, uh, means they are living in that continuous uh, occasion of, of sin, of grievous sin. And then they say, this is something good, which may be improved, uh, may mature, uh, but this is not a, nothing good. It's a serious sin. Uh, so that's a heresy. Uh, when you uh, call uh, sin as something good, that, that's really terrible. Uh, We've been reporting for weeks that there's this growing opposition to uh, fiducia, this, this document, all over the world, particularly in Africa. Whole bishops' conferences have vowed resistance. Uh, Pope Francis took seriously the African bishops' objections to the document, so much so that last week he gave the African bishops liberty to reject the whole thing. But he calls Africa a special case. He's also referred to critics like yourself of the document in various parts of the world as belonging to, quote, a small ideological group. Your Eminence, your thoughts on this cultural exemption for Africa? Actually, it's not only Africa. There are uh, many other places, even some bishops mm -hmm. in France, eh? uh, to my surprise. And uh, then... Uh, uh, maybe the whole problem is not uh, that uh, uh, of that pr priority for them here in Hong Kong. It seems that nobody is uh, uh, interested in this. Huh? Uh, we 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 see and feel no no reaction to all this. Huh? I am uh, uh, trying to to receive all the information from so many parts of the world, but here in Hong Kong, maybe uh, maybe in our church we don't have that problem. Cardinal Zen, Pope Benedict XVI, who passed away just a little over a year ago, he was a dear friend of yours and a mentor. How do you think he would have reacted to this document? I, I think uh, uh, from all the, the magisterium of Pope Benedict, he has just one point, the truth. So it is very important uh, to start from the truth. Uh, there is no uh, right pastoral indication, if not based on the truth of the faith. Huh? Now, the faith uh, for uh, so many centuries huh, is uh, very clear huh? uh, that the, 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 the sodomy is a serious thing. And uh, so whenever we see a misunderstanding, we have to have people to understand and uh, to come back and not just to to stay, not even for the moment. I want to get your thoughts on the Synod on Synodality that just wrapped up in October. Now, just before the Synod, you wrote a letter warning the bishops of the world about what you saw as a reinvention of the biblical concept of synodality and cautioning them. You wrote this, because of what I'm going to say, I can easily be accused of a conspiracy theory, but I see clearly a whole plan of manipulation 
they, the synodal organizers, begin by saying we must listen to all. Little by little, they make us understand that among the all are those whom we have excluded. Finally, we understand what they mean are people who opt for a sexual morality different from that of Catholic tradition. Often they claim not to have an agenda. This is truly an offense to our intelligence. Anybody can see which conclusions they are aiming at. You wrote that in September of last year. Your Eminence, the second part of the Synod is about to kick off in the fall. Did your fears of the first Synod materialize? And what should we expect from part two? If you have the right intention, uh, the first thing you do is to help the people uh, to clear uh, the, the thoughts. Huh? Uh, because uh, if you leave something uh, uh, not clear, uh, people may suspect now oh, the word uh, synodality uh, is a new word in the church. Huh? And uh, so you need a, a clear explanation what is our understanding of synodality, not just uh, uh, from the etymological source of the word, huh? because uh, the church has, uh, is using were the synod for so many centuries. Huh? And uh, uh, synodality comes from synod. So you, you must, first of all, uh, bring back the whole tradition of synods. Huh? And from there, you can come to a, a right interpretation of synodality. But now, uh, they start from the synodality. But, uh, you know, that word is impossible to, to translate, at least in our mm. Chinese language. So our people, they were simply taking synodality to mean uh, more participation, more communion. But now we realize that they understand something different. And so they have another understanding of synodality, uh, which I, I think in simple words, uh, this uh, new synodality means a democracy. <laughs> means democracy just uh, as uh, they, they are uh, uh, talking about uh, in, uh, in, in Germany or even uh, uh, at the very beginning, uh, after the Vatican II in the, uh, in the Netherlands. Huh? And so they want uh, uh, absolute democracy. Then if that is approved, then uh, anything can be changed. Huh? And uh, the, the doctrine of faith and uh, uh, about uh, the morality. Huh? So... That's very dangerous. Your, your Eminence, I was very surprised that after the Synod, we heard no talk of same-sex marriages or even LGBT in the final document, but then all of a sudden this uh, blessing of same-sex couples is just announced. There was no Synod discussion of that. And we're already seeing pictures and videos coming from all over the world of what appear to be priests blessing same-sex couples, and they're in front of altars, they're in wedding dress, matching dress, yet Pope Francis and the doctrinal office still say the priest is blessing individuals, not the union, not the couple. And the Pope said this week, everyone will calm down about these blessings. Do you think they will, and should they? I saw an agenda at the very beginning, but now it's clear what was the agenda. Huh? Uh, you, you, you should remember that a small uh, footnote uh, in the uh, uh, Amoris Laetitia. Uh, uh, mm. You must remember that they on the Viri Probati. Uh, okay, 
uh, those who were uh, half failures uh, for those who had that agenda. But now it's obvious. <laughs> Everybody can see clearly what was the agenda. They say, no, we don't have agenda. Actually, they put this uh, 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 G, uh, B, G, uh, LGBT. And uh, 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 at, the, at the bottom of the whole list of the so many problems, they moved the whole church solemnly using a synod just to, to have a chance to, uh, to, to let people to accept such a, a, a impossible thing. Huh? Uh, the Pope announced last year that he intends to make an apostolic visit to Belgium sometime in 2024. Meanwhile, there's a case of a Belgian bishop who has publicly admitted to abusing his own nephews. He resigned as Bishop of Bruges in 2010. He has still not been laicized. He remains a bishop. And this all starts to feel like the Marco Rupnik case. Your Eminence, your thoughts on the Vatican's failure to act on these serious cases that involve sexual abuse while stripping priests of their faculties if they celebrate a traditional Latin Mass. Why the reluctance to discipline these deeply wicked men and the, and the immediacy when it comes to stamping out an old version of the Mass? I don't know what the purpose yeah. of a visit by the Holy Father uh, now in, yeah. in Belgium. I don't know. Uh, but uh, I am uh, uh, more surprised about this uh, uh, strong... Uh, campaign uh, against uh, the Trident and Mass. Uh, uh, at least, mm. as far as I know, those people who, who cherish that, that Mass, they are so good people. I never saw any, any uh, 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 action against the, uh, the, the Vatican Council. They are very good people. Mm. Uh, and yeah. uh, people just, uh, they like to have... Uh, a good prayer, and uh, uh, so uh, I don't know how many places where this mass is connected uh, with a, a, a revolution against Vatican II. Uh, I do. I would be very surprised. It's a chimera. This is a. This is sort of created. I've, I've never seen it. I've never seen a, a whole parish of people who just hate the Vatican and hate Vatican II. Uh, they're, they're going to an old mass because they're finding sacred worship and a transcendent mystery that they simply don't get elsewhere. About the, the mass, I think uh, people yeah. should know that uh, in the Catholic Church, uh, there are also many rites. Uh, we have many yeah. uh, Catholic uh, uh, dioceses uh, of the uh, uh, Oriental rites, uh, now, they are very different from from the post Vatican Second Mass, eh? and so why should they be so so uh, uh, worried about uh, one more, which is not new, right. uh, uh, which was the Mass for years in the Church? Eh? Your Eminence, let's talk about happier matters. Your new book, uh, Cardinal Zen's Lenten Reflections, it was just released. What inspired you to compile? Uh, this book of meditations for Lent. Uh, I, I know you released a, a set of Advent reflections last year, which I have. Tell me about these reflections and where they came from. No, I think the, the inspiration did not come from me, but from a friend of mine. And uh, he came to know that I wrote many homilies. Uh, 
for three years uh, uh, on the Sunday uh, on the Sunday uh, lectures, and then uh, I issued uh, several pastor letters uh, before uh, Advent, before Lent, uh, and uh, he had them translated, and uh, he saw it may be useful uh, to collect some pieces and make a little book uh, for Lent. Now, uh, uh, may be useful, so. Uh, I'm happy for that. You divided the book into two parts. There's a Lenten part and an Easter portion. Uh, and I have to say, yeah. I love that you've included reflections on the light and hope of Easter. There's a particularly beautiful section about suffering persecution. It's in the second part of the book. You write this, what should the faithful do amid persecution? Peter's exhortation is filled with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Blessed are you who suffered for righteousness. Do not be afraid. Give me a sense of what you would say to Catholics and other Christians who are suffering persecution, no matter where they are in the world, merely for their belief in Christ. Uh, you see somebody say, uh, our Catholic Church, uh, beside being uh, uh, one holy Catholic uh, apostolic, uh, we have also persecuted uh, so the church is always mm-hmm. persecuted. Jesus said, uh, they don't like you because they don't like me. Huh? So we are going to be persecuted. Huh? Actually, I don't, don't think uh, we should desire for persecution. Huh? Persecution is something bad huh? because uh, the good thing is uh, freedom. Huh? And uh, uh, to, to, to die a martyr, you need uh, a, a murderer. Huh? So uh, we should mm. not desire for persecution. But when the persecution comes, uh, 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 you have to be uh, happy because, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the strength uh, which comes to the martyrs uh, are not their own strength. Huh? Uh, the mm. God who allows for persecution, he gives the Before we run out of time, we spoke last time of the late Pope Benedict XVI. Um, you had the opportunity to attend the Pope's funeral, and there was a very touching moment when you paid tribute to your friend and mentor at his casket there in the Basilica. Tell us your thoughts at that moment, and what do you think will be Pope Benedict's legacy? I, I want to tell first about his legacy. As I just mentioned that moments ago, he was the man of truth. And uh, uh, nowadays, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, it's hard for somebody to tell the truth, uh, because when you say you have the truth, people think that you are arrogant, uh, because they don't believe mm. that there is any truth. Uh, there are only uh, viewpoints. Uh, that's a terrible thing. Uh, mm. We believe in truth, because God has given us reason, and we have also a revelation, which is the word of God. Huh? And so uh, Pope Benedict uh, did everything to defend the truth, huh? uh, even uh, knowing that uh, uh, many people uh, were simply refusing him, even you start talking about the truth. Huh? But that's the source of liberation. Huh? Uh, the, yeah. the, God, the, the word of God says, only the truth will free you. Huh? So the the truth gives us the real freedom. Uh, and so uh, to be able to be able to be present at funeral 
was, was a thing, simply a, a, a big honor. Huh? So uh, mm. uh, I did the procession. So I uh, I used the stick to come. Huh? <laughs> and so I want to, to be seated before uh, the procession. And uh, once uh, seated there, uh, I thought, oh, I am the only bishop from Hong Kong and from the whole of China. So I've heard that I represent all the Chinese, huh? grateful for the wonderful things that Pope has done for, for our church in China. We are so happy to see you, and thank you for being here. Cardinal Zen's Lenten Reflections by Joseph Cardinal Zen is available at bookstores everywhere and online, including EWTN's catalog. Thank you so much, Your Eminence. Thank you, Eric. My next guest is a screenwriter, playwright, syndicated columnist, and a New York Times bestselling author. Tuesdays with Maury spent four straight years atop that prestigious list. And his latest novel, The Little Liar, is set during the Holocaust, and it explores love and redemption in the midst of that very dark reality. Please welcome back to the show, Mitch Album. Thank you so much for being here and, and for, for taking the time. Th yeah. This latest novel, as I mentioned, it's set during the Holocaust, and it focuses, Mitch, on the lives of these three children in Greece, who are all victims of deceptions and the deceptions of war. And it deals with the nature of truth and the grace of redemption. Now, I know the idea for this first came to you when you were in a museum. Tell us which one and how the idea came. I was in Israel for a, a book tour on an older book, and uh, I was with Yad Vashem, which is the famous Holocaust museum there. And on the walls are different videos of people who were survivors who were recorded uh, talking about that period of time. And I happened to stop in front of one where a woman was talking about how people have asked her over the years, why did you get on those trains if you know those trains were taking you to concentration camps and your deaths? And she said, we didn't know. We were fooled because the Nazis would often use Jewish people under the threat of death to trick them and stand on the tracks and say, it's safe, you can get on the trains. And I thought this mm. was just a particularly cruel uh, ruse to, you know, use your own people against you. And so the idea always sat in my brain that there was a book there somehow. And then when I decided to make it about a little boy, that's when it kind of came together in The Little Liar. Yeah, and Little Liar, it does involve a little Greek boy, Nico, who has a reputation as a truth-teller, and he's tricked by the Germans, uh, a German officer, to deceive his neighbors. Tell us a little bit about what kind of journey Nico then sets on, and what were you after here? What did you want readers to confront, Mitch? I wanted people to ask themselves, what's the biggest lie they've ever told? What were the consequences of that lie? And what would you do to be forgiven for that lie? And in Nico's case, as you point out, he's 11 years old, he's never told a lie. He gets tricked by the Nazis when they invade his town in Greece to stand on the platform and tell people it's OK, the trains are going to be safe, they're taking you to new jobs and new homes. And only on the very last day when he sees his own family and this little girl that he loves being pushed into a boxcar, does he realize that he has been tricked and that these trains are actually going to the concentration camps and he's not allowed to go. And so the book follows mm. him and his brother and the little girl that they both like and this Nazi who tricked him for the next 40 years, showing the ramifications of that one lie, Raymond, that one lie on all of their lives yeah. and shows you the power of, of, of a lie when it is that evil and the need for forgiveness of something like that, the magnitude that we require when we want to be forgiven. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's a, it's a life-affirming and, and really moving story. Look, I don't want to spoil it for, for anyone, but The Little Liar is a meditation on truth, ultimately. And what happens when Nico learns the truth really sets him in the opposite direction. He becomes a pathological liar, Mitch. I mean, and it really ends up being a powerful fable, I think, for all of us. Do you think truth is a casualty in today's culture? And at what price? 100 percent, Raymond, uh, it is. And uh, I think we live in a world where we're all choosing our own truths. They, there's mm-hmm. even this expression, my truth. People say that all the time as if they're, you know, they're proud of it. And it's like, well, wait a minute. If your truth doesn't match my truth, then, then what is the truth? And I think when you live in right. a society where someone can put, put a falsehood up on a, a little device, you know, a little phone or something, and uh, in, in, in 15 seconds, the whole world has read it, before it, it, it exemplifies that old expression, the lie travels around the world before the truth can put its yeah. pants on. And we really yeah. live in a world like that today. Yeah. Uh, I'll say. And look, I, I was stunned to learn, Mitch, that 20 percent of young Americans believe the Holocaust is a myth. How is that even possible? And then there was another, what, 33 percent who said it might be po- it might be a myth. I mean, this is like mind blowing. It is. It's shocking. And. You know, I grew up, Raymond, in a neighborhood with a lot of older Jewish people that lived in it, and many of them would wear long sleeves, you know, in the summertime. And I remember as a little yeah. boy asking my mother, why are they wearing it so hot outside? They have these long sleeves. And she'd say, well, they have these numbers tattooed on their forearms, and they don't want people to see. And I, I said, well, why not? And she said, well, I'll tell you when you're older, you know. And, of course, I found out when I was mm-hmm. older, well, many of those people are no longer around to tell the story of what happened. And I read that same report that you did about 20% yeah. of young Americans thinking that the Holocaust is a myth. And interestingly, that same study, 60, anyone over 65, it was 0% think that it's a myth. Right. So that shows you that the people who know people and remember that period of time can tell you, no, it's not a myth. And yet you have young people somehow coming up and saying, oh, we don't want to hear that. It, it, you know, we know better. That's what, one of the reasons I wrote The Little Liar was because I wanted in my literary career before I died to contribute at least one book that would, would push forth again the idea that this can never happen again. And it was very, very real. And everything in The Little Liar except the four fictional characters is actually true and true events and based on yeah. true events to try to bring home the point about how horrific that period of time was. Yeah. Mitch, how long did it take you to assemble the book? I mean, a book like this, I know it was big. I I know how, you know, at times you grab things here and there as you go. But how long did it take you from the the inspiration at Yad Vashem till now? Uh, Well, I like to say, you know, books take me about a year and a half to write and a lifetime to think up. So, you know, it's somewhere in between that. (laughs) I mean, it was 10 years ago that I saw that museum. So I've been noodling with the idea for 10 years. But Mm. when when I finally came up with the idea of truth being the narrator, of the book, that's when I sat down mm. and I said, okay, I'm going to do it. I wrote this one page that said, I just, it just kind of came to me one morning and I said, uh, you can trust the story you're about to hear. You can trust it because I'm the only thing in the world you can trust. I'm the mirror that holds your final reflection. I am truth. And this is the story of a little boy who tried to break me. And when I read that back, mm. I said, yeah, I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to read this book. And I said, okay, I'm going to start. I, I know this that book story. Now. Yeah. <laughs> 
Isn't it amazing? Yeah, people people always ask you, when did, when did you get the idea? But sometimes those ideas take a lot of time to germinate, and then they kind of mature at the right time. It's really like planting a garden in your head. I mean, it's a, it's a little seed, and then who knows when it blooms or what triggers it. But then you have to kind of go where it leads. You pursue the truth, I mean, which you do in this book. And, and exactly you touch right. on something. When you were last here, we talked about the effect of social media and how that uh, was contributing to sort of a breakdown of faith and belief and how it's almost become its own religion, social media. A recent Pew survey on so-called religious nuns, those with no religious affiliation, not the ones that have it, but uh, people of no religious affiliation is on the rise. Religion was always kind of the social glue that held this American experiment together. As that begins to slip away, Mitch, what effect does that have on the concept of truth and objective truth, as opposed to what you were saying earlier, my truth? Yeah, it erodes it and it starts to wipe it out, because if you don't feel like there are some things that are universally true— Thou shalt not kill, you know, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt mm -hmm. respect, you know, your, your neighbors and love your mother and your father. Basic things that are considered, you know, what, what is what is religion, if not as an acceptance of certain things that are true? I, you know, uh, and, and if you let that go, you say, well, there's no such thing as true. It's just whatever I want at the time. That's my truth. Then yeah. you've broken down the very, the very concept of, of truth and the very value of it. You know, there's a parable that I use in the book which is, a, is an actual parable. I didn't make it up, but I heard it about yeah. when God decided to create the world. Before he decided to create man, he got all the angels together and asked them if it was a good idea. And all of them said, yes, the angel of righteousness said, yes, let man be created. He will be righteous. Angel of mercy said, yes, let man be created for he will do merciful acts. Only the angel of truth said, no, do not let man be created for eventually he will tell lies and be and, and be false. And the parable says that God took the angel of truth and cast him out of heaven and threw him down to earth. There are many interpretations of why God did that. But in my view, it was so that truth would smash into a billion pieces and every little piece would land inside the human heart. And there it would either live or die. And it's up to us in our faith and in our in our, our lives to decide, are we going to honor the truth or are we going to just let it die? And sadly, we're moving more in the latter direction than the former. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. Finally, uh, Mitch, what do you want readers to take away from Nico's journey and this this little liar uh, who sort of finds his way through through the telling of lies? And, and well, I, I, like I said, I don't it's it's such a beautiful book. Everybody should go and read it. But what do you want them to confront and wrestle with and be left with at the end? Well, uh, you know, I don't I can't write a book without hope, uh, Raymond. And, and uh, I've been teased about that. You know, a, a critic once ripped me apart in a whole review. And at the end, he said, oh, he's just the king of hope, you know, as if it was a bad thing. You know, I thought, well, it's actually not too bad. I'll take that. You know, so, uh, that's an honor. There is, yeah, I think so. But the, and the book is a hopeful book and it deals with forgiveness which goes back to my time with Tuesdays with Maury. I always say all my books contain a little slice of Tuesdays with Maury in them. And, and my visits with Maury, a lot of it, he talked about forgiving people before you die. And Nico seeks forgiveness his whole life. And Fanny, the little girl who was in love with him, tries to find him her whole life to forgive him. Of course, he's changed his name. He's changed his identity. He doesn't live anywhere near where. So it takes them a lifetime to find each other again. But it's all about ultimately the idea that, yes, you could do something that's that's wrong, 
But if you earnestly seek forgiveness and others earnestly seek to forgive you, in the end, there can be a hopeful ending. And, and that's what I'd like people to take away when they read The Little Liar. No, Mitch, I, I have to agree with that critic. You really are the king of hope. I mean, all these stories <laughs> are hopeful and redemptive. And to me, that's what makes them so appealing. And I think so, uh, well, they, they cut to your heart. And they're a rare, it's, it's, a, it's a handful of authors who are doing any of that today, which I think are wrestling with the eternal things we all as human beings deal with. And not only what we deal with here, but what we will be dealing with in the next life. So um, to touch on that is, I know, a brave walk and one you, you've done repeatedly so beautifully over all these years. So The Little Liar really is, a, uh, I think, another uh, beautiful, hope-filled book that confronts the truth of where we are as well. The Little Liar, a new novel by Mitch Album, is available at bookstores everywhere online. You can follow him on X at Mitch Album. And Mitch, always a pleasure having you. I hope you'll come back. I sure will, Raymond. Thanks so much. He's the director of one of the most prestigious boys' choirs in London. The London Oratory Schola Cantorum Boys' Choir was founded in 1996. You've already heard them on the soundtracks of The Lord of the Rings and the Harry Potter series. They've just released a brand new CD, a unique collection of sacred music titled Sacred Treasures of Venice. Here to tell us all about the new project is Charles Cole. Charles, thanks so much for being here. Sacred Treasures of Venice continues this anthology of sorts of sacred music, which is drawn from the liturgical repertoire that uh, the Scola sings at the oratory. What inspired this new collection? I think partly my own personal love of, of Venice. I love going to Venice. Mm. And, but Venice is, is an incredible place. It's, it's, it's uh, history uh, of, of music and, and composers is so, so rich. Of course, Venice was uh, an incredibly powerful, important place. And there was a, a spiritual power concentrated there as, as well as political. And some of the composers who were writing music for the Ducal Chapel, which as we, we know better as St. Mark's uh, Basilica, mm -hmm. uh, were so outstanding. So there's an extraordinary wealth of beautiful, beautiful music that we wanted to draw upon. Is that why you chose Venice as well as St. Mark's Cathedral as the location? I mean, that really is where you, you recorded the album for the choir to sing. The, the recording was made in London, in fact, but we did sing in ah. uh, St. Mark's. We were, we were very, very fortunate to sing right in front of the tomb of uh, St. Mark, uh, the evangelist himself. Um, but the, the recording itself was, was made in London. Well, and the composers of these sacred treasures lived and worked through the culmination of the polyphonic age, which was a, a unique period of musical transition at the end of the Renaissance and beginning of the Baroque era. Tell us what's the significance of choosing an a cappella repertoire, which your choir focuses on, as opposed to mixing choir and instruments? Well, towards the end of that period was when instruments were starting to be used in, in church. Uh, and, and in really, St. Mark's is, is uh, where a lot of that was pioneered. And the, the point at which we, uh, the, the music that we're singing is drawn from is, is right at the end of the polyphonic period and right at the beginning of the new age that we would come to know later as the Baroque period. Um, mm -hmm. the, the culmination of the polyphonic period is, is, is its absolute peak. It's when, when those composers, I think, are working at the absolute zenith of their powers. It's, it's an amazing, amazing time. 
but uh, just after that, uh, Monteverdi uh, is probably the best example of this, uh, is a composer who was conscious at the time that he was he was on the threshold of a new era, and so he was writing in an old style, which he literally called the stile antico, the first practice, mm. and in a new style, the stile moderna, which was known as the second practice. And that is where the mm. instruments, they'd, they'd already started to have instruments playing in church, but they always were, were self-contained. Um, they didn't perform with the musicians, and then they started to, to mix the two together. So really, our, our recording is concentrating on the a cappella part of it. I want to give viewers a little taste of what we're talking about. Here's a bit of Sacred Treasures of Venice, sung by the London Oratory Scola Cantorum Boys Choir Lodge. see the uh, the inscription there, Monteverde, uh, in the clip where, where the boys were singing it. He played a significant role in changing music for low masses uh, at St. Mark's Cathedral. For those who don't know, explain the significance, the importance of Monteverde to choral music and really his influence on the form. He was, a, he was so uh, such a giant in this area. He certainly was. He... he... Absolutely. Um, he spanned the, the end of the, the, the polyphonic period and the beginning of this new period, the, the, what would become the Baroque period. And he came from Mantua. He wasn't actually Venetian. He came from Mantua and eventually got the, the job he'd always prized, which was uh, to be the uh, Maestro di Cappella at St. Mark's. Um, and in that clip there, you see us um, uh, singing around his tomb, which is not actually in St. Mark's, but in uh, the Frari Church in Venice, which is mm. uh, a very, very significant church. It's, it's the place where they uh, laid to rest some of their greatest artists. Uh, Titian, for instance, the artist, is, is also buried in that church. So Monteverdi, really, his, his music and his most famous piece would be the, uh, the Monteverdi Vespers, which we also performed last year. We had a, a sort of big Venetian year last year, um, which started with this recording uh, and then a performance of the, the Monteverdi Vespers and finally a tour to Venice, uh, which is uh, what that uh, footage uh, comes from when we were able to sing both in the Frari Church where Monteverdi is buried and in St. Mark's where he worked. Charles, where do these Christ-centric texts originate? Give our audience a sense of their meaning and how the pieces tie into the season of Lent. The, well, the music on the, the CD comes from all sorts of different uh, parts of the liturgical year. Um, Adoramus mm. Te Christe 
is is a, a, a very devotional um, text. It's it's a it's a very beautiful text which is handled so beautifully by Monteverdi. It's 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 quite incredible. But there's also uh, a number of other texts in this recording. Um, uh, we have Easter texts in there. Um, there's a text from Good Friday. So we span quite a few different parts of the church year. The thing that ties the whole thing together, of course, is that all of the composers worked in Venice. Before I go, give me a sense of the rigorous training that these boys undergo to produce this sound an incredibly tight harmony. I mean, this sacred polyphony and chant, this isn't something you just walk in and sightseeing. I mean, you really have to go through an extensive training, and there's a lot of breath control and, and, and pitch and harmonics that go into this. Give me a sense of their training. You're absolutely right. There, there are no shortcuts to this kind of music making, and I think that's what makes it stand out. You know, we live in a time where we, we look for shortcuts all the time, but there, there's just no way around the hard work. The, the, the tuning particularly has to be very, very good, and the boys have to develop a really good ear so that their, their tuning is absolutely spot on. And, and the, the, the spheres, of the harmonic spheres, which most of this music oscillates between, the, the tonic, the dominant and the subdominant, have got to be so perfectly aligned and tuned so that everything works, works really, really well. The boys have a very, very punishing regime, really. They work every morning before school. They're, they're rehearsing with me for an hour, and then they have their school day, and they, they also um, they, they, they have rehearsals during the school day as well. And I think another part of it that's important here is that this, this choir has a, uh, uh, something I'm quite proud of, really. The, the average age of all the singers in this recording is 14. So you've got boys who are as young as 9 and 10, going right up to 18, and then a few of, of our Newman scholars who are boys who have just left the choir, who are sort of 19 and 20. So that's the, the, the age range. And one of the boys said something really very interesting and very insightful to me um, uh, recently. Um, he said that when he was a treble singing the top line, it was like soaring through the clouds, um, flying above everything, yeah. and... Uh, an amazing, exhilarating feeling. And now that he's a bass, he stands on the ground looking up at the harmony. And I think that's just an amazing <laughs> way to sort of put it. Um, and, and it shows yeah. that, that difference as they transition through the different voice parts, how they experience the same music, but in very different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it does. And you do visualize and place the tone. You know, people who don't sing don't have that, that. They don't have to worry about this. But when you're singing, you do have to sort of place it and see it. So I, I totally understand what he's saying. And when you hit those bell-like tones, on the rare occasions you can hit them, Charles, uh, in my case, you know, you do feel like you're soaring above, you know, the world. It is, it's an incredible feeling. But the breath control, you know, that, that capacity of breath and the release... That's, that is such a difficult thing, particularly for young people. I have to say, Charles, I didn't even, I couldn't really find my diaphragm, I think, until I was 25 or 26 years old. You know, and I had tr voice and singing training throughout my whole life. It does take a lot of time to really figure out the mechanics of it, the musculature of it. I think that's true. And, and, and also for younger children, they've got, to, they've got to work on their concentration. They've got to be resilient and yeah. be able to concentrate uh, for a long period of time. And also in polyphony, there's a particular other area, which is 
it's it's a sort of it's it's like a, a a little version of Christianity. We all have to look out for each other and be kind to each mm -hmm. other. And so when we're singing music, you're having to listen to the other parts. You're having to hand on a good lead to another part that's going to draw its tonality from you. And and that kind of looking out for each other that's that's a, a, a very important part of polyphony as well. So I think I think there are other skills that they can learn from this music. I agree. I think it it, it teaches you concentration, uh, accommodation of others that you're not the center of everything, and and there is a certain um, uh, refinement of heart I think when you sing material like this because it just opens you up to the power of music the power of God and worship. And, it, you know, th this repertoire is just so rich. This isn't like you're just doing a show tune. Not that there's anything wrong with show tunes. I love show tunes, too. But, uh, but there's a richness here that, that I think uh, does something to a young person when you expose them to it in their, in their formative years. Has the Pope's restrictions on the celebration of the ancient form of the liturgy in any way affected what you do at the London Oratory Scola Cantor? It hasn't, no, because we sing the Saturday evening vigil mass, which is a uh, Novus Ordo mass, um, so we, we haven't seen any impact from restrictions a, a, at all um, as things stand at the moment, um, which, which, is, which is good. It's, it, I think it's really important that this treasury of music is, is looked after. It's so special and it is sacred in that true sense. It, it has that purpose. And as you said, you made a very good point there about how this music does seem to refine uh, the heart. Yeah. It, it, it sort of aligns the soul. It tunes the soul into what, what it ought to be in, in, in yeah. you know, a, an attempt to, to encounter the divine. Well, it's truly sacred music. And Charles, and we have more time, the roots of polyphony and chant. I mean, this goes back to the very origins of human expression in song. I mean, and, and certainly the earliest days of the church, uh, it, it touches all of that. So it, it kind of is, it's like our opera and we should protect it and it should be pr elongated and, and, and moved into the future because it is the entire tradition moving through time. And there's not something fuddy-duddy or rigid or passive about it or wanting to go back. It's preserving what is and what always will be. What's next for you and the Scola? Our next tour is, is uh, going to be to Italy again. We, we had such a oh. great time in Venice last year, so now we're going to be going to Florence and uh, looking forward to that very much because that's another amazing mm -hmm. place. And the following year, we're working on a, uh, a tour to the United States, um, we've oh. been very fortunate to be invited to a festival that's taking place uh, in Grand Rapids. Um, next, next year, 2025, is a very, very significant year. It's the 500th anniversary of the very greatest um, Renaissance polyphonist, Palestrina. Um, he was born Palestrina, in 1525 yeah. um, and he yeah. uh, died in 1594. Um, and... This festival is going to last for the whole year, and they've invited three British choirs um, and a whole host of American choirs to, to come and take part. So we'll be in the States in July 2025, and, and I'm hoping to build a tour around that. Yeah, well, we look forward to that. And in the meantime, Sacred Treasures of Venice by the London Oratory Scola Cantorum Boys Choir is available now at music outlets everywhere online, including Amazon and Apple Music. Thank you, Charles. Thank you.
My next guest's personal experience will certainly speak to the many of you who are either caring for or did care for loved ones who are ill. She is the director of communications at EWTN, the author of a very personal new book, Walking the Way of the Cross for Caregivers, how to cope practically, emotionally, and spiritually when a loved one has a serious illness. Here to share with us her inspiring story is Michelle Lockie Johnson. Michelle, thanks for being here. Uh, as anyone who has done it certainly knows, caring for a loved one who's seriously ill can be an enormous challenge. I want to start with your own story. Tell us about your late husband, Stu, and what you both endured for eight years. Well, my husband was an amazing man, um, and I was about to find out just how amazing. Um, he had eight, he had three bouts of cancer over eight years, had his leg amputated up to the hip, and he became a quadriplegic. And during that time, I was working here at EWTN, thank God, uh, because there was a a very good health care program, and they did allow me to work from home when needed. But um, it was a time that was very difficult and yet very blessed. And one of the things that I really emphasize to people when I talk about this is, you know, you think sometimes in the beginning that um, it's just going to be all something terrible. There were so many beautiful memories that we created over those eight years. We got so much closer to each other as we worked together to save his life. And his cancer was misdiagnosed for a year. So if that hadn't happened, you know, he'd probably still be here. But they told us he had very little chance of living more than a few months. And instead, he lived eight years. You titled the book Walking the Way of the Cross for Caregivers. Why did you decide to arrange it that way and frame, uh, really, what is also a spiritual and emotional uh, advice book? Why did you decide to frame it in the form of the Stations of the Cross? Well, Raymond, I was actually in church about seven years after my husband's death, and I had been kind of just messing around, you know, writing different parts of the book and not really knowing how I was going to do this. And we were saying the Stations of the Cross, and all of a sudden, the things that had happened over those eight years just started flashing through my mind. And I was just given to know mm -hmm. that we really were walking the way of the cross. And I think it's a beautiful thing because, you know, I didn't think of it that way when it was happening. But if you do, and I share that with people, you, it gives your suffering cosmic meaning. meaning. It just, mm. it, it makes everything, because it, you're following Jesus's way. Michelle, you had two specific audiences in mind when you wrote this book. Uh, this is from the preface. Two kinds of people are likely to pick up this book. The first and hopefully the largest group will be those of you whose loved ones are ill and who are seeking advice, reassurance, and a companion to accompany you on the journey to which you've been called. Some of you may have picked up the book because you're wondering how could there be any blessings in terminal illness and whether pulling the plug, either literally or figuratively, isn't a better option. Michelle, talk to me about those two audiences and the case of Brittany Maynard, which you address in the book. 
I do, Raymond. And she became the face of the Right to Die movement a number of years ago. Um, if, if for people who don't remember, um, she was, you know, diagnosed with what the doctor said was a terminal illness, and she didn't want to have to go through um, what she saw as a great deal of suffering. So her family uh, took her to Oregon, where she did commit suicide. Um, and I'm not telling that story to uh, be judgmental about her, but I'm telling the story because I want people who read this book to see what I believe death with dignity really looks like. And it's not killing yourself, because we're going to go through the cross either way. With, when the person dies, that's another cross. And if you do it prematurely, you are going to miss so much. You're going to miss the opportunity to find out what selfless love really is. And I can tell you, you will have conversations with your loved one that you never would have had. You will have chances to go places and do things that will be memories for a lifetime. And you will grow in virtue. It was a battle the two of us were fighting together, and it drew us closer to each other because, you know, we came to depend on each other in different ways. And I got a chance to see yeah. my husband was the bravest man I've ever seen. And there was so many instances where I got to see that. When he had his leg amputated, I've never seen more bravery in my life. Um, we had to wait the entire day. We are sitting there. He couldn't eat, couldn't drink. They brought him in at the end of the day. And I watched him. You know, we prayed together, and as they came in to wheel him out, he put his hands on either side of the gurney and just gave that nod like he was going into battle. And it's a memory. I mean, yes, it's a hard memory, but it's also a memory of a man who wanted to be here for me. And it's a memory mm -hmm. of love. In the book, you consider caretaking a calling. You write, uh, whether he or she leaves earthly life or lives to fight another day, this experience will change both of you. If you understand your purpose here, it is more likely to make you better rather than bitter. Speak to me about the enormity of that role. Uh, explain how caregivers can better understand what their, really, not only their role, their responsibility is in that moment. And about the memories, you all made a determined effort to make new memories, even with the prospect of death looming. Yes, we did, Raymond. And I mean, the, what you just brought up is incredibly important, because if you understand your purpose, the Lord, the God the Father sent his son down to suffer and die for us. So I thought about that a lot. Because otherwise, I mean, what's the purpose of all this? Jesus' purpose of coming down here was to save us, you know, from our sins. What is our purpose in suffering? Because there is a purpose, and Jesus is the model. You know, as I read the book, uh, it really does uh, awaken you and sensitize you to not only the reason for our journey here, but the reason we go on this journey together, particularly when you're talking about spouses or parents, um, and the, the deep spiritual and life uh, and eternal truths that can be gleaned from even these painful moments. So oftentimes, the, the, the healings we get are not the healings we expect. 
And uh, that was sort of my big takeaway as I, as I read your book. As I mentioned earlier, Michelle, November is National Caregivers Month. With the aging of the population uh, and very likely many more caregivers at home at this point in their lives, what's the most important message you want readers to take away from walking the way of the cross for caregivers? Well, you know, there's several messages that are important, and one is that the good times are not over, okay? And I have a whole chapter in there about how we went to a dude ranch in Wyoming when he only had less than a year to live, and, you know, there's good times. But the most important thing that people have to do is make the decision, number one, that they're in this for the long haul, and, and that they're going to walk with Jesus along the way of the cross in order to do this. You know, people will sometimes say, well, I couldn't have done what you did. And I want to say to them, well, I couldn't have done it either if I hadn't been, if I hadn't turned to God. Because anything I did that was good was a result of the grace that he gave me. Um, I give examples in the book. For example, in the very beginning, I was standing outside of the room where my husband was laying, and I had to—he was waiting for me to wrap his leg because it was filled with cancer. And I didn't humanly want to go in there and do this, and I, I, I tell this story. But even if you turn just slightly to the Lord, which I did internally, and I was given this prayer, which is not the way I normally pray, and it was, Divine Physician, help me. And at that moment, I got the grace. And I walked in and I said, come on, honey, let's do this. And he was like, I'm so sorry I have to put you through this. And I said, it's not a problem. And it wasn't because I got the grace. And so that's why we cannot take this into our hands. It's important that as a couple or as a family, whatever, you're you're working together and you know you're not doing it of, of yourselves. Because most of us, I would say all of us, could not do it if we didn't have Jesus by our side. And I, I so mean that. Michelle, thank you for being here. Walking the Way of the Cross for Caregivers by Michelle Lockheed Johnson is available in bookstores everywhere and online, including EWTN's catalog. That is all the time we have for now, but be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, Thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.